everyone, you're listening to Inequality Talks, a podcast from the volunteers of the Economic Equality Group at Mellenfolkelitz Samwege Aarhus. My name is Elise, and joining me today is Haliki Klein to talk about degrowth economic theory and equality. So Haliki is a good friend of mine. She's a PhD student at the Institute for Ecological Economics at VU, or Vienna University of Economics and Business. She previously studied her Master's of Science in Socio-Ecological Economics and Policy, which is how I know Haliki. Um, but she also studied her Master's of Arts in International Relations uh, with a minor in Economics at St. Andrews. She works a lot on topics related to degrowth and sustainable work, consumer ideology, um, conceptualizing the good life, and socio-ecological transformation. And she's also been the conference coordinator for the Degrowth Conference, and she's a member of the Foundation for European Progressive Studies Young Academics Network. <laughs> Is there an abbreviation for that, by the way, Haliki? That's <laughs> Jan. Fepsian. Fepsian. I like it. It's not that fancy, so it's like... Um, So thanks for joining us, Haliki. Do you want to say hello, say a little bit more about yourself, like non-academic stuff or what you've done this morning? (laughs) Hey, hi. Um, I think uh, you gave quite a good overview of what I do. I don't have that much stuff for non-academic things right now. so It probably takes up a lot of your time. Yeah. I think maybe one thing I would add is just that I also um, teach on these topics. So I'm also working as a, a lecturer at the University of at the Vienna University of Economics. So I also teach on sustainable work mm-hmm. and also um, somewhat on degrowth as part of other classes. Mm. Oh, and another fun fact: mm-hmm. I lived with Haliki for how many months? Was that just one month, actually? I think it was. Uh, yeah, just one month. Oh, sadly. Yeah, it, was it, was, a nice, it was a nice month. It was a nice mm-hmm. month. I Felt learned like a years. lot about degrowth <laughs> during that <laughs> uh, with our wine talks in the kitchen. Um, yeah, okay. So the overarching theme of this episode is how degrowth theory conceptualizes inequality, um, especially in contrast to how mainstream economics conceptualizes inequality and how degrowth practice tries to address these various forms of inequality that persist throughout society. But yeah, let's first discuss degrowth as an alternative school of economics. Um, So degrowth is one of those terms that I feel like is starting to gain some traction, um, especially after the Donut Economics book has come out. And yeah, so even outside of academic circles, degrowth is starting to uh, get some attention. But I've I've noticed, and this includes myself, it's sometimes a bit difficult to define succinctly the whole movement, the whole degrowth movement, because it is a movement in a few simple sentences. So before we get into it, I want to ask you, in its most basic terms, what is degrowth and... Like if you had to explain degrowth to someone who knows almost nothing about economics, how would you kind of capture the essence of degrowth economic theory? Okay, first of all, I just want to say that I wish that degrowth was really a social movement. I'm not sure if we're there yet. So Mm. I think it would like to be. Mm. Um, But I think in general, uh, people that have not had their brains washed with neoclassical economics probably understand it easier. I think you have a harder time. 
mm. helping people de-learn some problematic things. So I think maybe it's easier to even understand it if you don't have a background in neoclassical economics. Mm. But basically, um, so we live on a finite planet with finite resources, basically like a spaceship. And economics is a historic process. So if we turn the materials we have on this planet into wastes and fossil fuel emissions that then heat up the planet, uh, we cannot undo that process. So degrowth refers to the abolition of economic growth as a social objective, basically. And it asks you to be aware that of, of what I said earlier, that our planet is basically a spaceship with limited resources. And it implies that we should organize society in a way that we can have a good life and that we stay within planetary limits, also in terms of using material resources and in terms of the emissions that we emit. And I think it's it's fairly uh, easy for us to understand, even if we have this image of the Earth as like the blue planet by itself, it's quite clear to us that we cannot keep consuming forever. At some point, it's going to come to an end. And that's going to happen either by design and, or disaster. So either we're going to design a new system where we live within the limits or we're going to keep exponentially growing the economy, growing the materials we use. And at some point it's going to have to come to an end. I think actually the best definition comes from François Schneider, uh, who defines degrowth as an equitable downscaling of production and consumption that will reduce society's throughput of energy and raw materials. Hmm. Yeah, that's, that's a good summary sentence. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> Who is that again? Uh, Francois Schneider. Okay. He's a uh, French early degrowth. Hmm. Yeah, kind didn't didn't the movement start in, in France, the degrowth movement, or if you could even call it mm -hmm. a movement? Yeah, I, I guess they always say that yeah, degrowth was used as a kind of missile word just to get people to think about what economic growth means because in our, in our society, um, we have this idea that GDP growth or this one measure has become become the sort of determinant of well-being and actually it doesn't measure that right so no but we become very very obsessed with this one number and degrowth was then as a missile word against this kind of obsession with economic growth as a social objective interesting um, so it was meant to mm -hmm. be provocative exactly and this is what i say that degrowth is an umbrella term also because it does include other camps that for example donut economics tries to be i mean tries to be less provocative and tries to really make us focus on a future, of, you know, the, on the positive sides of the, of the future, mm. of a future. But it's also maybe less radical. And of course, we can talk about this later. Mm. Well, it seems like we want to well. get there. So let's jump into that, um, that sure. question. Mm -hmm. um, what are the different branches within the degrowth community? And mm -hmm. are there certain like levels of degrowthiness, uh, <laughs> if you could say that? <laughs> yeah, so it, it's an interesting question. In general, I think there are quite a few kind of research areas that grapple with this issue of limits to economic production and growth. And there are different names. So degrowth has come to be a kind of umbrella term in general, but it's also divisive. So some people don't like the name degrowth because it implies a recession. And we know mm -hmm. that degrowth is not a recession. And maybe I have to make that clear. Um, uh, degrowth is not a recession. Degrowth is not a recession. <laughs> but there's also donut economics, um, which um, so donut economics is focused on a more positive vision. How can we fulfill human needs within planetary boundaries? So that's I would say that's kind of a reformulation of the idea. It's maybe also a little bit less radical and there's, there's certain problems with it. But there's also post growth. So post growth is basically degrowth, I would say. 
but repackaged for the mainstream. So this is just my opinion, so don't quote me on this. The post-growth pretty much means the same thing as degrowth, but it's more, it's okay for, for example, for the European Commission to talk about post-growth, but they cannot talk about degrowth. So post-growth has kind of is the content societal acceptable word. Is it just s- simply using a different word? Yes, well, they tried to, they're, they're basically saying the same thing, that they're saying that there, there needs to um, be material limits to further economic expansion. So we need to move past growth past growth in a way to focus on well-being. Um, so it's also maybe more within the system itself. How can we change the system as is donut economics? Um, and in idea, what they're both saying is we need to change the system to such a radical extent that it's actually a different system, mm-hmm. but they're not willing to say, let's change the system. <laughs> they say, let's do this and this and this and this so that actually we have a new fundamentally new economic system that we shouldn't actually, we cannot call capitalism anymore because it's mm-hmm. not growing all the time, right? But they're not saying let's abolish capitalism, um, which is fine because I think it's also good to have these different terms for different societies and different parts of society. So it almost allows politicians to be able to talk about degrowth, but just watered down. Yeah, I think I think it's useful to have these different terms, actually. And the mainstream is starting to engage with these topics. And I think for that reason um, and and I think there's different opinions on this. Um, so I, I personally also understand that degrowth cannot be the banner under which everyone unites. And maybe it's good to have yeah, different reformulations. Mm. Not everyone will agree with me, obviously. Um, a growth is basically the idea that we should focus on well-being and we should focus on staying within the environmental limits. And we shouldn't care about economic growth. We should move away from concentrating on GDP growth. And probably if we do this, you know, probably economic GDP growth itself will probably decline. So it's saying we will probably have to have degrowth, or we will have degrowth in some way if we focus on environmental and well-being outcomes, but we shouldn't care about uh, growth mm-hmm. either way. And then we have steady state economics, which was really big in the 90s. Um, it's by Herman Daly, he's one of the big proponents, um, a really famous ecological economist. And the steady state economics is then about how we can have an economy that is not growing and the problem is that since the 90s, so we know that uh, more than 50% of all historic emissions have been emitted since 1990, actually. So we could have had a steady state economy in the mm-hmm. 90s uh, if we had stopped growing. But we know that economic growth has been exponential. And also the fossil fuel emissions have been exponential, have been growing exponentially since the 90s. So actually what we need now, we need to we need degrowth before we can have steady state economy. So this A growth, it seems to be the position that Kate Rayworth takes in donut economics because she says, um, we don't need to be obsessed with growth. We should be agnostic about Mm -hmm. growth. And that, in your Mm -hmm. opinion, correct me if I'm wrong, is not radical enough because we actually need to degrow our economies or like Mm post-growth, however, whatever word you want to use, before we can be agnostic, like we have to make a conscious choice. It's not like you can just turn your your back to growth and be like, oh, now I'm just going to give you the cold shoulder and ignore you. You actually have to like ad- like face growth and address it as a problem because it is a problem. Yeah, I wouldn't I actually wouldn't say that. I'm, I wouldn't say that I'm specifically against uh, donut economics per se. I really actually there is also problems with it. But I'm happy that it exists mm-hmm. um, or I'm happy that it's uh, reaching a different type of audience. I mean, I might use the donut economics or Cape Edwards idea in certain situations rather than degrowth mm-hmm. because I still think that our society is very growth centric. Yes. And um, 
yeah, I don't know how much time we have. We don't have to go into that. There's been a lot of fudging narratives that have tried to basically um, hide the fact that economic growth uh, has huge environmental implications and that economic growth is not adding to well-being. So we haven't really seen an increase in well-being since the 1970s, 1980s in the global north, even though we are consuming a lot more, we're producing a lot more. And that's because we really increased the consumption of sort of positional goods. Mm. So these goods that don't actually add to your well-being, they just um, show your power in society and so on. So actually... We've increased emissions massively without really um, helping people have higher well-being. And I think if you live in a society where you've been told economic growth is good, we need economic growth, we need more production, not more consumption, growth, growth, growth. Oh, the GDP has only increased two percentage points this oh, year. No. Oh, that's really bad. You know, exactly. So if you've been brought up in this society and this is where you've lived, I think it is quite jarring if someone says, oh, we need degrowth. So um, I, I think maybe something like dollar economics can be useful mm. in the general population because also that's the other problem with degrowth it's a very academic mm. discussion in a way yeah so a growth is kind of and, and being agnostic towards growth is kind of like a first step into changing this really deep-rooted mindset that growth is not only the remedy to all of our society's problems but actually the ultimate goal um where would you position yourself mm. in in this debate I think I'm someone, I'm, I'm trying to be quite practical, but also critical, and that's sometimes difficult. Um, so I, I research trade unions and trade union environmentalism, for example, and I'm also involved in projects working together with the Chamber of Labour in Austria. And I think it's very important to find a common language and understanding which degrowth is not always able to do, as I mentioned. So I think it's important to kind of pick your terms to the right audience, so to speak, um, hmm. so that they so that they understand what you really mean and what you what I what I really mean is hey that's concentrated on well being, uh, there's material limits to economic production right that's what I'm trying to say, hmm. and if the donut economics idea is able to convey that better then that's what yeah that's what you have to use, but in general of course um, I'm very much involved in the the degrowth community as well it's quite a tight community of researchers and academics in different fields working on these topics. Yeah, I think it's it's in Estonian. There's a saying that a good child has many names. <laughs> Can you explain that? True. I'm not sure I understand. Um, so a good child has many nicknames, so to speak. So I think that's the same with this understanding of material limits to production. So we have degrowth and hmm. donut economics. Now I'm just thinking, how many nicknames did I have as I was growing up? I think three. Uh oh. Is that enough? <laughs> <laughs> what's the you're an okay child <laughs> you're okay, fine. okay how many did you have well i was kiki, I was... kiki. That's cute. <laughs> uh, I was mickey and minnie also my granddad used to call us mickey and minnie my sister called me kina okay well um, you're already at four so you're doing better than me <laughs> i i think maybe five or six <laughs> i feel like you have yeah. a, one of those names that's like really good for making nicknames and bad for for everything else i would spell <laughs> it out no one knows if you're I, I constantly get emails from students calling me uh mr professor Cranin. what and um yeah herr professor Cranin. and i'm always like wow i should really be earning so much more. There is one oh. thing I wanted to add about mm -hmm. degrowth that is quite important, actually. Yeah. So about de about inequality, and just going back to what I was discussing earlier 
So we haven't really seen an increase in well-being since the 1970s and 1980s in the global north, even though we're consuming so much more, and a huge increase in inequality. And we know that in um, under inequality, uh, you have to consume more positional goods. And we know that inequality is really, really bad in general for us, for our mental health. And uh, if societies are unequal, then everyone has to kind of consume more to show their power and you have a lot of bad health outcomes and so on. But most importantly, I think even a better link between degrowth and inequality is just simply that we have been sold this idea that we don't need to fight inequality. We don't need to fight inequality in society. We don't need to fight inequality globally because actually economic growth will lift all boats. So instead of fighting inequality, instead of redistributing wealth, for example, oh, we're going to have economic growth and then everyone will be better off. Mm-hmm. And of course, we know that this is not possible in the limits of the environment and our space spaceship Earth, right? We don't have right. the material resources to keep growing at an exponential rate until everyone can live like Kanye West. That's not going to happen. But it's been so it's been a, it's, it's been one of the biggest lies we've been told, mm. you know, it's, it's incredible how well that's traveled mm-hmm. and that we're still so wedded to economic growth as a way to improve situations. And the economic growth is not a way to improve situations. Right. It doesn't say anything actually about how equal a society is. We, you know, we could have huge economic growth and it simply um, makes those who already have a lot of wealth, wealthier. Yeah. And it could say yeah, yeah, nothing else. Concentrated. Mm. So I, I think it's an incredible lie that we've been sold. And degrowth mm. also tries to highlight this. We don't need more economic growth. We need more equality and we need a better division of what we have. Mm. Not just for the planet, but also for society. Also for our mental health, because they're, the high inequality that we have now it is, as I mentioned, it's driving the environmental crisis because it's driving higher consumption, mm. but also it's driving a lot of other things. So suicide rates in the general population, especially amongst young people, other mental health problems, the, this obsession with consumption as a way to um, show who you are, um, how we value other human beings uh, in society and so on. Mm. Yeah, and actually I was going to bring this up um, when we moved on to talking about equality, but we can just move there now. Because I thought it would be first best to introduce the topic of equality and how um, by introducing how it's conceptualized and discussed in neoliberal mainstream narrative. And I was actually going to to mention that the first thing that comes to my mind when uh, we talk about neoliberalism and equality is this Kuznets curve, right, that you just alluded to, basically. And which, for those of you who don't know, it looks like this upside-down U on a curve, um, or on a graph, sorry. Um, so, of course, looks very sciency, And it represents this claim that inequality will increase as your economy grows. But after an economy reaches a certain point of growth, inequality will actually decrease. So it essentially argues mm-hmm. that it has to get worse for some before it gets better for all. And that economic growth is this primary mechanism to achieve economic equality. Um, in other words, inequality is a necessary evil. And economic growth is the only remedy and also, like I said earlier, the ultimate goal of society. Um, But what's funny, and actually Kate Rayworth talks about this in her book, Donut Economics. Um, She explains that Kuznets himself actually came out and said that this is basically, what was it? Like, do you remember what he said? It was like, it was basically like, 
like he said himself that it was basically uh, borderline guessing and then mainstream economics like took the kuznets curve and just fucking ran with it and then it ended up just being in every single macroeconomics uh, textbook um but now it's sort of like woven into the fabric of mainstream economics would you say yes um I think I just found the quote that you're referring to, that Kuznets oh. himself said that his work was 5% empirical, 95% speculation. Exactly. Yeah. And some of it possibly tainted by wishful thinking. But this is the general problem that um, we have with economics and neoclassical economics, is that a lot of the thinking, it was based on, on sort of 1950s ideas of physics and trying to find specific laws for economics like you would have physical laws mm. or, or laws of chemistry or whatever, something like that. And of course, those laws don't really exist or you, you do not have, the economy doesn't exist without history, without society, without very right. specific institutions. And you cannot have this ageographic, ahistoric rules or laws. And the Kuznets curve is one of these because, of right. course, as I mentioned earlier as well, um, Many of the ideas of these 1950s physicists who after the end of the Second World War turned to economics and tried to make a living uh, with fancy mathematical equations, many of the ideas that they had about the economy are very, very specific to this incredible time in history that was um, the period after the Industrial Revolution until now, mm. so to speak, this period where suddenly we had access to a lot of high energy density Uh, energy resources that then uh, with very, very bad environmental outcomes, of course, that hugely increased productivity growth, for example, and productivity um, and production, removing the need for, for, for human labor and also yeah, helping human labor become more productive. But this was a very, very specific historic period because those fossil, the fossil fuels that we had that fueled this oil and coal and gas and so on, um, these reserves, um, in reality, these are This is material that has built up over millions of years, right? Dead animal parts and dead plant parts. And this was this was a kind of a, a, a miracle time in history that we had this huge growth in materials, res materials resource. So these ideas that they had were not based on some sort of physics rules, but rather what was happening and what has happened um, mm. was a kind of historic process, right? And I think mm. um, that's where economics really went wrong in considering itself as a kind of natural science, not as a social science uh, with history and everything else. Right. So that's also the yeah the problem with things like the Kuznets curve or Kuznets idea of um, income inequality in a growing economy. He doesn't he didn't consider, for example, labor movements um, and concentrated wealth and like a, a whole tax exactly. system which is mm -hmm. built to just uh, valorize capital and encourage wealth that just concentrates in the hands of a few and isn't actually exactly. returned and, and, and to society the hardest part about that actually i think the, the, the worst part about that or the worst thing about it is that by suggesting that economics is something like physics you remove politics you remove power relations mm. and you hide a lot of things by saying this is normal this is how it works mm. and this is scientific you kind of remove discussions about what the economy is for how it functions and i think this was the the biggest sort of um, coup d'etat of of the you know field of mainstream economics that it managed to sell uh, very very problematic unfair ideas 
as um, as a kind of truth. As fact. And the Kuznetskov is a part of that, right? Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So there's also, I mean, there's many things that are removed from economics, right? Reality, for example, material reality, exactly. uh, the environment as a basis for a society and the economy, uh, yeah. power, history, colonialism, mm. um, and so on. And this misunderstanding um, yeah. and like misconceptualization of growth and equality and all this other stuff, it's not innocent, mm. right? Like you say, it has real world consequences because you know, mainstream economics isn't just teaching economic students, this is how the economy works. It's also informing policymakers. And that has real life consequences for, for everyone and for the planet. But I think economics is fundamentally, it's mis, it's misrepresenting reality in a way, and it's representing a specific thing as the truth or as scientific. And economics, of course, is a social science. So there are no nat uh, natural laws because any laws that we might em have, they emerge in specific historic, uh, institutional, geographic settings and so on. We know all this. But another thing that economics really uh, misrepresents, I would say, in, especially if we're talking about inequality, is global inequality and the relation between the global, global North story and the global South. And we know that this relationship is is a kind of colonial relationship. It started out as a colonial relationship and it continues to be a colonial relationship by and large. So this, the discussion on development itself and global inequality, it often hides the fact that the global north, we were developed and we're being kept developed by the global south. So mm. we have um, a socially and, uh, and ecologically unequal exchange. Mm. So basically the global south has developed the global north. Right. And we still receive products and materials with much embedded labor um, and also embedded, uh, for example, environmental sinks. Yeah. So in terms of inequality uh, and economics, that this is completely removed and hidden, right? The real material, yeah, right. the um, real material impact. Of yeah. Yeah. I think we would be sorely remiss not to discuss the inequality between the global north and the global south and how basically our whole economic system, like our whole global economic system is completely reliant on the global north's economic, political and social exploitation of the global south. And like you said, there's exploitation of cheap labor or social dumping. Um, and But we're also extracting, uh, excessively extracting and commodifying countries' natural resources like precious metals in Africa And not only that, but also forcing privatization of common goods, like, for example, privatization of water supply, which is a terrifying thing to think about. Um, and also, not to mention, imposed austerity measures that are tied to um, fundamentally unfair international debt. Actually, fun fact, no, not fun fact, it is a, f a fact, but not fun, out of like the $13 trillion dollars of um that the that so-called developing countries or global south countries owe I guess how much interest the global south has paid just in interest like from from the international debt 4.2 trillion dollars so out of like 13 trillion dollars it's 4.2 trillion dollars that they're paying in interest so like we have a whole global economic system which is just like fundamentally unequal so Degrowth has a lot to say about this structural inequality, but how can degrowth policies actually address this global inequality? I know that's like a really huge question, 
I think this is a key part of degrowth, actually. Mm-hmm. So the whole so degrowth was born in the global north, and I should have actually maybe mentioned this earlier already. Degrowth is not about degrowing economies in the global south, but rather degrowing consumption and the economies in the global north so that there is space for the global south also to meet basic needs. Mm. Um, And that is key because basically currently currently the global north is consuming overwhelmingly at the expense of the global south. So the idea is that you also have to reconsider um, trade relations, for example. Mm. Um, and in general, the, the question of development, because a lot of development is also colonialism, causing forced proletarianization, forced development, pushing people off the land uh, for mega projects who lose their subsistence or, you know, of the land, also the connection to the land. This, this is happening massively in Brazil, for example. Mm. And this is seen as a good thing. This is seen as development because... Um, economics does not include an understanding of the environment, material limits to production, and also no power relations. Mm. Um, or anything that isn't monetarily valued. Exactly. Mm. And and this is a problem also with this evaluation of poverty, for example. So let's say ind- indigenous communities get pushed off their land uh, with land grabbing and land basically stolen from them by uh, maybe their own governments um, who then give that land or sell that land to mega projects, maybe some of them even ecological projects um, or that look green but are not really green. And then they say, oh, well, you know, we have this and this much economic growth. Maybe they even hire some of the the people back with very, very bad and low wages. And then um, that's called development. And they say, oh, well, we can can say that the people now earn this and this and this much more. uh, So this is a good thing. But before people didn't maybe need to have so much money because they had their community, they had their um, houses, they have their homes, they have subsistence. So there was a whole different understanding of, of poverty. And now we force this understanding of poverty on them. So I think that is uh, something that also degrowth tries to challenge. And I, I, I think that um, there's many really good development economists, for example, who probably mean well with what they're doing but I think we just need a much broader understanding um, of communities, especially now that we are so close to many, many environmental crises and um, increasingly erratic weather conditions. We should be supporting the communities that know how to live um, in balance with nature, for example. Mm. Um, and that should be appreciated much more than um, mega projects or this idea of development mm. um, through financialization, exactly. So basically, degrowth would fundamentally challenge this idea of development and sort of highlight the the post-colonial aspects of developmental economics and appreciate the the different ways of living that maybe we don't understand in global north countries but are, in fact, way more ecologically and socially sustainable practices and ways of living in global south countries and also reevaluating the global north's relationship to the global south with things like um, trade negotiations um, and unfair international debt for example and then like less directly degrowth policies that would reduce strains on the environment would have um, these indirect effects on um, for the global south. Yeah, maybe just I would like to add one thing to that: that degrowth tries to make power relations visible, and this the the reality um, of what forms the basis of economic trade between the south 
uh, the global south and the global north. And um, I think it's quite useful to think of this in, in terms of the imperial mode of living, which is Ulrich Brands and Markus Wissen's term about basically how the global north has this socially and ecologically unequal exchange whereby they have they get a lot of resources embe with embedded labor and embedded resource sinks um, and materials and so on. So it's not just that within societies in the global north, we have a lot of inequality. And again, we have Kanye West flying around in his private jet and his huge billion dollar house and so on. Uh, it's not just that people like him are living the imperial mode of living, but rather that all of us, even everyday lives in the global north, we're structurally benefiting from um, unequal trade with the global south. And even we are living a lifestyle that is actually not supported by not yeah. only environmental limits, but Absolutely. also the social limits. And yeah, slave labor, of course, um, we have more slaves today than ever before, just because population um, growth. Um, but, you know, cho chocolate, coffee, many other goods, mm. also seafood, weirdly enough, and many agricultural goods come from slave labor and that's a fundamental part of our consumption in the global north mm. yeah for example if you if you get a new phone every two years i mean you are doing extreme harm to the planet and also feeding into this system of excessive extraction and of like non-renewable materials that are being extracted out of global south countries and the top 10 percent of the global population is overwhelmingly responsible for consumption-based uh, environmental emissions, right? So mm. clearly inequality is a, is a huge thing. So we've, we've been talking a lot about global inequality and um, specifically inequality between the global north and global south. But I'd also like to talk about how economic equality um, can be confounded by other social inequalities like systemic racism, gender or queerness discrimination, and so on. So what does degrowth theory make of all of these other confounding social inequalities? Mm -hmm. So in general, we mentioned the relationship, as you, as you said, between the global north and global south and how that is obfuscated and hidden in economic theory, right? And the same is true um, about other relations that are hidden uh, in neoclassical economics or mainstream economics. And one of that is, for example, reproductive labor um, so to say, so unpaid labor done uh, predominantly by women of keeping societies going. So all the things that go on. Also, this includes, for example, um, subsistence agricultural labor, but also cleaning and cooking, child care, elderly care, and so on. So there's some overlaps with ecofeminism. So now we mentioned um, inequalities in terms of like gender in the global north and global south. And of course, racism comes into that as well. But specifically in-country racism, so for example, in the U.S., that is tackled through um, tackling inequality. So degrowth wants to basically redistribute wealth, put a cap on um, maybe maximum and minimum incomes. So by doing that, you are also effectively tackling sort of structural racism that exploits certain groups in society. So degrowth theory would indirectly help to address social inequalities by addressing the economic equalities which drive those other social inequalities and and also by prioritizing these social inequalities on a, on the political agenda um and first of all recognizing that they are there because um that's a key point right, right and that they matter 
and that there is this relationship between poverty and crime or education and crime and all of these societal uh, problems interrelate with each other. So how I understand it is that degrowth says these things matter, like these things feed into each other and they have to be prioritized on the political agenda. Otherwise, um, otherwise nothing's going to change structurally. Basically, it says, let's focus on the well-being of society. Let's focus on things exactly like health, education, uh, make sure that people's material needs are met, but that we're not over-consuming positional goods um, beyond what, what the planet um, and what the global south, actually, in the global north, can, um, can take. And I think by, by tackling things like societal well-being, inequality, and so on, you also tackle the material outcomes of yeah of structural inequalities and and the other thing is um you know i think we haven't really mentioned this i think it's really important where you start out from in your discussion about what is happening and we know that we have to you know we 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 have to keep climate change below 1.5 degrees because otherwise the climate or the, you know the 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 earth systems will basically go into the hot house earth scenario whereby basically um different feedback loops will kick in and the earth will start warming itself even without our input right so for example the arctic will melt so less um heat will be reflected back because ice is white and water is not white it's dark so it takes in more heat you know at the same time that means that already we're heating up more and then that will mean also that more water evaporates water is also a greenhouse gas so that means that that will heat up the earth even more so the problem is really that uh, once we go above 1.5 degrees, we really don't know when the heating will stop. And we know that if we miss this 1.5 degree scenario, then we will probably be looking at at least three degrees warming by the end of the century, right? And maybe even more, maybe up to five degrees, maybe even more. And that means that even at three degrees warming, um, huge um, coastal cities like Miami, like Shanghai, Alexandria and Egypt, they will be underwater, right? And that will affect 275 million people and that agricultural systems will start to collapse already before then. And basically, if we, if, you know, if we understand what is really at stake, if we understand what is really happening, then I think many of the smaller or many of the other struggles um, also for positions in society, no? I feel like many of the struggles are also positional struggles. Um, many of those will be able to understand within this wider system and the wider threat that we're, we're facing. And the fact is that the global north, even though we've, you know, we've, we've caused the climate crisis basically, and we're overwhelmingly responsible for it, uh, we will not face the worst of it or the brunt of it. So depending on where we are, uh, the, the planet does not heat equally either. So with two degrees warming in Denmark, where you are, we might have up to seven degrees warming elsewhere, right? Mm. For example, mm -hmm. in sub-Saharan Africa. So, I think once you once you really remember that and once you understand what is at stake and why we're fighting for degrowth, why we're fighting to 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 really change the economic system and to put well-being first, I think it, within that you already have the struggle for everyone in a way. We're saying, yeah, we want we want well-being for all, we want inequality for all, we want you know all lives to be important. But I mean, um, yeah. if you take like Black Lives Matter movement, for example, and mm -hmm. like the fight against police brutality and the um, killings of innocent black and brown people mm -hmm. in the U.S., I mean, that like mm -hmm. that threat is way more immediate. And so I feel like you couldn't really mm -hmm. it, it wouldn't be right to say, oh, Black Lives Matter. Why aren't you actually paying attention to climate? 
I you know what I mean? think that those things are also very related, right? I think... Yeah, it's not to say they're not related, but it's to say that, I mean, one threat is way more immediate, like, you know, a gun is pointed sure. at you. And then then climate change, yeah. of course, it's extremely serious as it affects our entire planet um, and, mm-hmm. and makes it potentially unlivable for everyone or, you know, mm-hmm. for most people. It is um, less immediate in a sense, um, I don't think that is the case. And I don't think we have to separate the two issues in a way. I mean, police brutality to me is an outcome of a wider system of structural racism, right? And it's a it's a wider system of also of the of the um the racist history and the colonial history of the US. And for example, black people in the US are, are also more um exposed to environmental risk and in general to climate change, for example and to pollution. So we know that even uh, in terms of the rates of COVID and the death rates of COVID, people living in highly polluted areas are more likely to die, right? Um, so, um, and this is, I would say this pollution pollution issue is also an issue of environmental justice and environmental structural racism. So I would, again, I would say um, if we change the economic system of exploitation and poverty and inequality and overconsumption and and all of these things, to me, um, these struggles are very, very interrelated mm. because we're saying we want to provide a life of dignity, a minimum uh, income and a maximum income, for example. So uh, an income corridor, you know, pro- we want to provide societal services, so basic uh, public services, things like that. That is also a fight against stru- structural racism and the inequality of um, of racism. So I don't think that we have to separate it um, no, and, and I, I don't disagree also, yeah, with you there. I mean, we know that minority groups will be more exposed to the effects of climate change and not just climate change, but as you mentioned, environmental pollution. Um, so I definitely don't disagree with you there. It was just to say that I think it's a it's a mm-hmm. maybe too much of a tall order to ask African-Americans in the U.S. who are like facing very immediate threats to their safety, their like their survival to say um, also focus on like situate your problem within the wider problem of structural global inequality and and climate change. Sure, but I think that should be more for the environmental movement to be able to um, involve these specific struggles. And you mm. know, that's that's more of the failure of the environmental movement and not the failure of Black Lives Matter. Okay. And I, I'm just I what I'm saying is that we need to form coalitions between different struggles because in the end we want the same thing, right? Mm. And I think it's very good that we have different movements. Um, if, but also just like one last comment maybe on this is just that we also have to be we have to be really, really careful because um, thankfully we have, um, so outright climate denial is very rare now. So most people have accepted because we are, we are really witnessing the, the impacts of, of climate change already. So most people have now um, kind of accepted that we have climate change. But what we have, what we see now um, are different discourses of climate um, delay. And Julia Steinberger and I think William Lamb, they just published also a paper on this. So they say that there's sort of emergent uh, discussions of climate delay now. And one of them is exactly this discussion on, oh, well, we can't really focus on on, on climate change or changing the system because people have uh, everyday needs and worries and we have to tend to those first. So, you know, for example, yeah, people don't really care about climate change because they, they, you know, they have other struggles. And I think that's, it's fine. And it's, I mean, it, it, that 
um, discussion also probably comes from a good place uh, or maybe from fear and from so on. But we have to be careful that we don't perpetuate those ideas that these struggles are separate and that we can only have environmental action once we've tackled some other things. I think we have to really... Um, yeah, just be careful of it and try to tie these different movements together always. Hmm, that's really interesting. Um, and I'm sure it's also a very like sensitive thing to, to talk about. If you talk about gender discrimination or you talk about um, queer discrimination, you know, everybody has their own battles. And I think it's like you touch a nerve when you say, um, just shift your focus a little bit out and like try to see the bigger picture when it feels so real to some people because um, it is real these um, everyday life experiences they have I would just say to that I think this has been again a success of neoclassical economics in a way that it's made us think of ourselves as this like insular individual consumers mm. uh, maximizing our maximizing our utility you know mm. and I think that's very much a, f a feature also of like the current era that we're in this like flexibilized capitalism that we think we think of ourselves as a unique atomized people and we think of our struggles as unique and atomized and I think this is actually really really problematic and it allows us to be divided and conquered um, mm -hmm. you know mm -hmm. and that's what I was um, I think many struggles they they are always they're very very valid and worthwhile struggles and I think we lose when, but, but we lose when we fail to see the bigger picture and we, we fail to see how these struggles are united and we fail to see how the fundamental problems that we have come from the same place. For example, material deprivation also of, um, of queer and trans folk, right? There's a, that's a huge problem. And I think we have to learn how to fight together for, for also for survival and for, for the survival of civilization. Um, mm. Um, because we are facing really an existential threat. And I, and I have no doubts um, about the fact that when the climate catastrophes hit or when we have erratic weather conditions or the poorest people, the most marginalized people will be hit the, the hardest and will be hit the worst. So it's very, very important that we yeah, that we fight for a common future together. Mm -hmm. And I actually, I really think that that is what degrowth is doing. And that in that sense, I think it includes so many social justice um, movements in a way I want to say and I'm not saying that the the degrowth movement itself is very diverse I think there's a problem with that there's a lot of white um, academics involved in the global north mostly um, but I think we have to do much better in trying to engage with um, the, the everyday worries of people and trying to um, yeah form broader coalitions so we've kind of talked a little bit about like general approaches to policy like what kind of areas of society and the economy that degrowth policies would kind of prioritize. But we haven't really talked about specific policies, degrowth policies. So I'm just wondering if before we run out of time, you could discuss um, some, some degrowth policies that would um, specifically address inequality or indirectly uh, address inequality. Sure. So um, in general, there is no lack of good policies um, uh, on the degrowth side and in general um, also uh, amongst yeah, different actors in this area, um, strategies for implementing them are rather the problem. So politics and, and how, um, how to implement these policies are rather the, the, the problem. Um, 
but in terms of good policies, of course, working time reduction is key. So reducing production, um, reducing work would help also reduce consumption and give you more time with your family and community and so on and to uh, take part in um, less environmentally harmful uh, consumer behavior, for example. Um, also universal basic services. So if we could provide services communally, so really, really good transport system, for example, um, also healthcare, uh, that reduces the need to earn a lot of money, uh, uh, which you then normally spend on consumption. So, so that would be public too. So that would also help to address exactly. equality because, you know, if I can't afford to have a car, exactly, then at least I have access to the public um, transport. Mm -hmm. Then um, I already mentioned the minimum and maximum income corridor, which is basically to, to reduce um, environmental um, impacts of consumption. So a minimum income corridor and a maximum income corridor would clearly help uh, inequality. I think that's one of the, the most, the key policies, maybe the one of the hardest policies to actually implement. Um, and then there are also other policies, like for example, a jobs guarantee um, that would specifically tackle um, um, unemployment in a society that is not growing. So currently unemployment is kept at bay through economic growth. And we didn't go into that. But in, a, in an economy that is not growing, um, we could have, um, um, yeah, we could have a jobs guarantee that would allow us also to employ people in environmentally uh, um, restoring activities, for example, or in other socially beneficial activities like care of the elderly and so on. Um, here I have to say there's been very, very uh, interesting and radical proposals also. Um, so. Um, the Labour Party's Green New Deal in the UK, so Jeremy Corbyn's Green New Deal, was full of really, really cool policies and that were too radical. And of course, there was uh, kind of a internal opposition even from the Labour Party because the policies were left-wing and there's um, a strong centrist element. And of course, same with the Democrats. So I, um, Ayanna Presley, for example, she introduced a bill on the jobs guarantee and especially as a way actually to lift Black people out of poverty by providing... Um, um, providing jobs with a, with a decent income. And of course, uh, this wasn't um, passed. So the question is rather, how do we, how do we um, get these policies into action? Okay, so unfortunately, I think we don't have enough time to keep going with this conversation. I would love to keep talking to you. So I would just like to ask one last question because we can get a little bit bogged down in all this discussion about how much inequality there is in the world and um, how much there is um, that needs to be done um, and all the challenges ahead of us. So um, I'd like to try to add a little um, bit of optimism in this conversation and ask you what your Haliki utopia world would look like. Nice. I think this is my favorite question. <laughs> Because um, also imagining utopias helps us to, um, to, to sell our vision of the future. And I think it's really, really important to have utopias, especially in discussions of the climate crisis, where everything seems quite bad. I think it's important to vision envision what is the good society that we want to end up in. Um, and I think that helps that, right? So, yeah, so I think the Haliki utopia would be a world where we have really reduced work, working hours, production and consumption and um, um, where we live in a world with shared modes of mobility, for example, um, more communal practices and time for family and friends, a really slowed down world yeah, where, where we focus on the important things. And 
a world with like shared housing, good public services, where everyone works 20 hours a week and then you have time to maybe do some gardening or to help out where we have huge community centers and huge communal activities and a lot of fun and joy and space for life where the roads are not colonized by cars, for example, deadly cars, but rather maybe we have children playing in the streets, right? Or we have some yeah, gardens in the streets uh, instead of um, tarmac, where we where we have removed the pressure to consume, the pressure to be productive all the time. Um, and we see ourselves as humans and not as cogs in a machine, or that we don't see ourselves as good only when we're productive, but rather we see the inherent value in everyone and where we live uh, in harmony with environmental limits, in harmony with others, where we don't cause damage to other um, people far away, where we know where our food and where our clothes come from, and we're not adding to slave labor. I hope that paints a picture. Yeah, now... A slow, calm, happy world. <laughs> yeah, there's definitely some overlap in the Haliki utopia and the Elise utopia. Thanks for sharing your utopian vision of the world. It's really inspiring to um, imagine the possibilities ahead of us. And what's amazing is we are really capable of achieving these kind of um, what seem to be utopian visions are actually really possible. Yeah. So Haliki, I want to thank you so much for um, for Zoom calling me today and joining me in this interview. It's been super, super nice having you and also nice to see your face on the video camera again. Yeah, thank you so much for the invite. It was a really, really good discussion and um, thanks for having me. Yes, you're welcome. And, um, and thanks to everybody for listening to Inequality Talks, a podcast from the volunteers of the Economic Equality Group at Mellenfolkelet Samvirke Aarhus. Um, Mellenfolkelet Samvirke is a Danish NGO that works for a more just and sustainable world collaborating with global partners worldwide as part of the Action Aid Alliance. Here in Aarhus, we have over 100 volunteers working together to run a not-for-profit cafe and campaign to educate in areas ranging from feminism and climate justice to anti-discrimination and economic inequality to queer issues and refugee rights. You can come down to the cafe every day except Sunday, except right now uh, we're open Thursday, Friday, and Saturday for amazing food, drinks, and events in a cozy cafe run by our lovely volunteers. You can also get involved with our events, activities, and campaigns, and even running the cafe as a volunteer yourself. So check out Instagram and Facebook to find out more about our cafe and our campaigns by looking up Cafe Melenfolk or Melenfolk in Litzamwege Aarhus or following the links in the episode notes. And please feel free to check out some of our other episodes on Spotify or Podbean. Thanks for listening, and until next time, goodbye.